Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor uh, of about 20 years, and I'm a former yeah. competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a strength coach. I also compete in powerlifting highland games. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, Rocky Mountain University, a bunch of other places, and... I'm actually at home for the second week in a row. Oh, Amazing. my God. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I was actually in Kansas City recently, but close enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, we have uh, some listener mail and two bits of news. Before we get to our topic of the day, we're going to discuss uh, accessory or assistance movements uh, for the top three power lifts, uh, if you will, and uh, so get these guys' preferences and you know, why and, and that sort of thing. Revisit, basically, assistance work. Um, let me start with a shout-out to Matthew. Uh, Matthew is an Iron Radio supporter, and he doesn't use PayPal or anything like that, but he really went out of his way, uh, basically, to send us some funds. So thank you, Matthew. That's appreciated, especially the, the extra effort. So keeping the lights on. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's see. Nathan writes in, and this is sort of a multi-parter here, so he says, first, uh, let me just say that Iron Radio is a gold mine for the egghead slash meathead misfits like myself. What you all do for the bodybuilding and strength sport community is nothing short of astounding, and I just wanted to thank you all for your hard work. I had a couple of questions that came up while listening to the latest podcast this morning, and I thought I would shoot them by you in case they sounded like something you might want to talk about on air. Number one, and this is something that I think is relevant to both you guys, not so much to me. With online coaching continuing to grow in popularity, I can't help but feel that it waters down the title of coach, quote-unquote, particularly for powerlifting and other strength sports. To me, true coaching is being there in person, correcting form, uh, loads, reps, set adjustments, uh, motivating the lifter in real time. I just don't see how, even with the best online coach, you could get anything close to the same benefit as having a half-decent coach in person. Can online coaching for strength sports be done effectively, or do you feel it inherently detracts from the work done by in-the-trenches coaches? I'd really like to hear, hear Phil's opinion on this one, especially. Let's stop right there, and then <laughs> a, a, let's answer that one. So, Phil, what do you yeah, think? Yeah. Well, I got a fun one on this. Mm. Um I coached Brian Hartzell, who became the fifth man ever to deadlift and squat 900 in the same meet, and I do it at a distance. Okay. I'd, I'd say it's effective. <laughs> 900 pounds of effective. <laughs> yeah, or it could be. I mean, of course, there's differences. You know, um, I myself uh, only take on people that are fairly experienced at a distance. Uh, so competitors that, that aren't just – I generally don't take on new people that have lots of problems. 
at a distance that aren't willing to come in and fix those problems. So in person, um, if we have little tweaks and things we need to do here and there, that's fairly easy to do at a distance. And like Brian will drive up like he's coming up today. Um, every few months he'll be here and we can work on little things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it can be effective depending on the person. So, so that sounds and, like almost like yeah, a hybrid. Said, yeah. And I also, man, I gave up being like a raw, raw pencil pusher or <laughs> pin pusher trainer a long time ago. I generally don't take on people that need, uh, I don't have much patience for people that need me to be there influence to train hard <laughs> oh right sense. yes totally uh, you don't people don't come to my, to my facility for me to yell at them and scream at them tell them get off your ass and work you know no i i got people in there that want to train so that's generally who gravitates towards me so and we we kind of pick each other up but yeah it can be it can be effective depending on the person i mean if you're a, a self-starter and your form's fairly good and you know so brian will put up videos every day of his stuff and i can talk to him about it and and still kicks some ass. So. Right. No, that makes sense. There's actually a trainer at, at my gym, a bodybuilder guy, and he, and this isn't very charitable of me, but he is that, he's the cheerleader type personal trainer. Come on, bro. Lightweight. Whoop. Mm. You know, stuff like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but I, as far as Nathan's comment about like sort of maybe cheapening uh, what a coach is. The, the the cheerleader type personal trainer stuff. I feel like that's like an '80s thing. <laughs> like, can we move beyond this and do stuff like I imagine what you're doing, Phil? Is yeah, uh, assessing videos, um, talking about different accessory movements or progression models in the main movements, or you know, and and then let them handle the motivation and not just feel like you're you're babysitting and cheerleading. Yes. Know? So, Mike. Um, I mean, you're online most of the time, aren't you? I mean, that, this is kind of your yeah. your main deal. So, what do you? How do you feel about this? As far as you know, is it real coaching and how it how it compares? I think it's just different. I mean, I think, like Phil said, it depends on the level of the lifter. Um, like, not so much recently, but a couple of years ago, I turned away a fair amount of people who were, I'd say, more beginners. And just said, hey, you need to do at least a couple sessions with the trainer to get, you know, your form down if you've never deadlifted and you haven't done any of these exercises before. Eh, online's not going to work so well for you. You need some in-person help, someone to at least show you the basics of the lift. And if you can be there with them more often, you know, all the better. You know, once you've got kind of the, you know, most of the people I work with, they're all pretty, you know, good at doing all the lifts. There might be a few tweaks here and there, but it's nothing like, you know, massive. They've got a lot of experience doing them. It's usually more for them, just the coordination of everything, you know, the training, the nutrition, the mobility, lifestyle, stress, you know, all that kind of stuff. And for quite a while, I actually didn't do online training. I started out years ago, probably jumping online training too soon. And I didn't realize how bad people could screw exercises up because <laughs> I was beating my head against the wall going, why isn't any of this working? And, you know, back 10 years ago, there wasn't, you know, as easy to get videos as it is now. Mm -hmm. I got some videos. I'm looking at them. I'm like horrified. I'm like, oh, my God, I never thought it would look that bad. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I literally stopped doing it. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm doing these people a disservice. I actually did more in-person training, and part of it was my own fault because I didn't have enough experience of how people could screw stuff up. And then 
probably like I started again seven-ish years ago. And I said, I'm not going to do online training until I can find a way to quantify each one of these, right? What are your biomechanics through different tests and videos? You know, what is the state of your autonomic nervous system using HRV? What is your nutrition? What is, I had this checklist of stuff that I had to be able to quantify um, before I did online training again. So I think if you're more advanced lifter, I think it can be you know super useful because a lot of the programs I saw people following, I'd say were less than ideal. Um, and I think that's probably the main benefit of it. And I don't think it's cheapens the title of a coach or anything like that. I just think it's it's different. And I, you know, I do have a handful of people that are kind of hybrids. You know, they'll drop in here like once a month, and the rest of it is you know all online or. People come in from out of town and we'll spend like, you know, half a day together and do some stuff and then we'll follow up online. So I think there's, you know, different ways you can get around it. But if you're new, it's definitely worth your money to find a really good coach, find a good environment, you know, get really solid at the basic lifts and then go from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost it's almost like it'd be valuable if we could only have a network of people across the country and I, I guess that's why there's different certifications and whatnot but like if someone teaches someone how to do major lifts and they do it badly i think about what phil said i think last week like you know oh my god like how do you unlearn that you know like we we're talking oh. about athleticism right and about how if you have an athletic client you just feel like you can get ahead so much more quickly um, because if somebody comes to you with quote unquote lifting experience, they've learned these lifts quote unquote learned, then you're like, Oh God, that's not how you do that. You know, like your form really sucks. That's not even a squat, you know, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I can, I can see how it's different. And you know what? The only input I have on that is I can tell you that whether it's dietetics or other things, there are attempts from different professional groups to try to create some kind of standards of practice for online and distance right and because you have to think about state laws i mean think about with something like nutrition is laws differ from state to state so can i give nutrition advice here if i don't have a license there you know there's a lot of these kinds of issues that the internet is just being disruptive in that way and we're just going to have to get our heads around it i like what both you guys said about the hybrid thing you know it's the same thing with online teaching like academics yeah Uh, ideally it'd be nice to have a hybrid approach where you do a lot of the didactic book learning stuff, and then, I don't know, a week out of the semester or something, you come actually get in the lab or work with mm-hmm. a client or you do something hands-on. That would be sort of ideal uh, kind of thing. But. Yeah, and that's when I – and obviously I teach for the Kerrig Institute, so we designed the human performance course. You know, that's exactly what we did. So for each module, all the stuff you need to learn is online, and then you've got three days of – you know, partial lecture and a lot of doing stuff, you know, and Kenneth J taught the aerobic portion. I think we did seven max aerobic tests in three days. <laughs> wow. So it's, it's pretty brutal, but you also get, I think that live experience and that hands-on, which can easily get lost, especially doing exercise and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Nathan, I hope that helps a little. Uh, yeah. I can see how it'd be much easier if you work with an experienced competitor who has a little bit of body awareness and you've got some video or biometrics to be able to discuss what's going on instead of, um, you know, try to build from zero. Um, Next up uh, from Nathan is the question uh, number two. With Iron Radio just celebrating episode 520, I can't help but wonder 
about all the changes along the way in the lives of the hosts. For example, by the time I started listening, Lonnie, you had retired from competition and Phil had already had his hip replacement. Uh, however, I feel like there was a whole other world that occurred before that. Uh, to be quite frank, I just don't have the time to dig back and listen to all of those episodes in full. That said, uh, I think it'd be really cool and insightful for me and others uh, that are newer listeners to do a walk through the past episode, starting at the beginning mm-hmm. and sort of summarizing each year along the way uh, what was going on in the hosts' lives, uh, notable episodes worth checking out, etc. I just think it'd be really cool. Thanks again for everything you do. Looking forward to another 10 years. Best, Nathan. Nathan's a research engineer, so I'm not surprised he likes the science stuff. Um, well, Nathan, just like you can't, I think, uh, listen through all that backlog, we actually can't even go – even year by year, we'd have to do 10 – it would take multiple episodes just to do an oh, annual God. review. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have people come up to me like, do you remember episode 221 you talked about? No. No, I don't. Not at all. <laughs> I really don't. It's just too much. You know, there's just too many. Uh, however, uh, point well taken. We did do a retrospective at the beginning of this year, Nathan. So just a couple episodes back when we started um, 2019. And I actually shared a few audio clips and, and stuff like that. So we did a retro type of thing, but there's no doubt. I mean, we, in fact, Phil and I were discussing it in that episode, that kind of retrospective about how we've changed over the years. You know, we've had different jobs. Mm-hmm. I've taught at different universities, you know, um, yeah, with surgeries. <laughs> I mean, mm, you can just lots of surgeries. Go down the <laughs> list. Yeah. So um, it's probably um, clever of Nathan to, you know, want some type of chronological thing because, I mean, if you're if you just had a surgery, we're going to be talking about different stuff for a while. You know, like mm-hmm. it, you're not going to be talking about ramping up for a meet because you, you know you just got stitched together um, with some additional you know titanium and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, that does affect uh, a lot of this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I, I, some of the episodes that we were recording when I did that last round of competing myself. Those are some eye-opening weird ones about my experiences backstage and stuff, you know, because I'm looking at some of this stuff like almost like a sociologist or an anthropologist or something like, oh, my God, some of this seems kind of weird and deviant, you know, and that's interesting. Or, oh, how do you do that? So I'm like poking around and asking people stuff, and it, it was uh, it was quite different, yeah. So I, I all I can really say is go back through. Uh, we do have archives at ironradio.org. Um, they're quarterly, so they're every 10 episodes, and just browse around, you know, or even Google image, or uh, Google search, rather, Iron Radio, and then type in almost any topic, and I think you're going to find it. So, mm-hmm. anyway, so that's that's fun stuff, though. All right, um, two bits of news before we get to our topic of the day. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is um, brand new, May of this year, Why You Love Coffee and Beer. This is from Northwestern <laughs> University. Wow. Um, they know me. Yeah, They know us all, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why do you swig bitter, dark roast coffee when others like sweet cola? It says, to scientists' surprise, a recent study showed that taste preferences for bitter versus sweet beverages aren't based on variations in our taste genes, 
but rather genes related to the psychoactive properties of these beverages. So that's mm. interesting. I think they went into this probably thinking this is going to be um, almost like a taste bud, you know, some kind of taste gene thing. Um, and it wasn't, uh, essentially. Scientist Marilyn uh, Cornelis searched for variations in our taste genes that could explain our beverage preferences because understanding these preferences could indicate ways we might intervene with people's diets, right? Why someone has a sweet tooth, for example. And uh, Mike, I'm sure you've worked with clients before. Maybe that's a bigger problem than with others. Um, yeah. some, somebody just smashes a chocolate cake. You're like, okay, we can't do that. <laughs> and then <laughs> other people may not want that at all. They want to eat beef jerky snacks or something, you know. Um, Potato chips. Chips, yeah, savory stuff. Uh, the genetics underlying our preferences are related to the psychoactive components of these drinks, says Cornelis, assistant professor uh, of preventive medicine at Northwest University Feinberg School of Medicine. Uh, people like the way coffee and alcohol make them feel. That's why they drink it. It's not the taste. And this paper appeared in Human Molecular Genetics. Uh, Cornelis did find one variant in a gene called FTO that was linked to sugar-sweetened drinks, but it was sort of weird and surprising that that particular gene variant would be related to SSB, right, sugar-sweetened beverage consumption, because it was previously related to lower risk of obesity. And so that seems counterintuitive, that the same gene that might be related to more sugary drinks was related to lower obesity. So I think they're still trying to tease some of this stuff out. Uh, essentially, they did 24-hour dietary recalls or diet questionnaires. Then they counted the number of servings of bitter versus sweet beverages, right? And then they compared it to, um, let's see, 336,000 individuals in the UK biobank. So they must have um, genomic information there. And they're just looking for correlations in this kind of stuff. I went to the uh, related paper here. Genome-Wide Association Study of Bitter and Sweet Beverage Consumption by Zong, Z-H-O-N-G. And again, uh, Cornelis or Cornelis is the senior author on this one. It says, except for drinking water, most beverages taste bitter or sweet. So they dug into, you know, genetic relationships with this. Sweet beverages included artificially and sugar-sweetened beverages uh, and non-grapefruit juice. Because, of course, grapefruit juice is not very sweet um, by itself. They say in the abstract here from the journal itself, our study suggests genetic variants related to alcohol consumption, coffee consumption, and obesity were primary genetic determinants of bitter and sweet beverage consumption. Hmm. So I think the take home here is it's not just about the taste. It's about how it makes you feel. Um, and I, I could certainly identify with that with coffee. I like mm -hmm. I think I like the bitter taste of coffee, but it's probably also the fact that it's sort of um, – Security blanket's not the right word. I mean, I don't feel nervous when I speak usually, but I like to have a hot coffee in my hand, you know, and sip it when I'm teaching or whatnot. Or I'm sure it's got something to do with the way I feel. So Yeah. Well, look at how often, I mean, decaf is not a real popular seller overall. So True. Yeah. yeah. You could argue that it doesn't taste as good either most of the time, but yeah. That's, that's true. Absolutely. Uh, one other little tidbit here before we go to break. Uh, the new Canadian food guide is out. So for some of our Canadian listeners, they're probably like, duh, Lowry. But here it is. <laughs> uh, what's, what surprised me, and I heard some dietitians talking about this, is there's no dairy group anymore. They say drink water. 
Um, I find that quite interesting. So they have they have a plate diagram, like a little infographic kind of thingy, like we do now with myplate.gov. Like the pyramids are gone, folks. Right? Pyramids are are gone. Um, And thank goodness, the early stage ones were really quite good. They were geometrically clever. You know, the big base, a little at the top, into a void at the top. But then they started vertical lines and all this stuff. And, I mean, there are different food guides from around the world. Canada had a rainbow for a while. But anyway, their new one, Canada's food guide, it shows a plate. Half the plate is fruit and veg. A quarter of it is essentially whole grains. And then a quarter of it, it says eat protein foods. So good on them. So it shows eggs, meat, beans, all kinds of protein foods. And then the little cup that's next to the plate, it just says make water your drink of choice. Mm. Uh mm. Now, down here in the States, I think the politics of this from the food industry would be too heavy. I mean, we could barely even add something to food labels about added sugars, you know, but try to remove dairy or meat. And you watch, you're going to watch these, <laughs> like the Cattle mm. Growers Association or the Dairy Council, they're going to come out of the woodwork and be like, whoa. Um, I thought I'd just offer this. One of the reasons, because. Some people are really quite down on milk. You know, there's the odd study that casein might worsen prostate cancer risk. Or, you know, I've actually had a student once say, why would anybody drink cow's milk? You know, we're like, we're the only species that drinks another species milk and all that sort of thing. Well, the reason is whey and casein are very high quality proteins. It's got potassium, vitamin A and D, right, fortified there's not much vitamin D in the diet. So, I mean, uh, and I've had I've talked to vegetarians, and they're like, well, I'll just get it with broccoli, my calcium, for example. <laughs> uh, well, I hope you really like broccoli. You know, I, I said it before. Broccoli, bro. <laughs> yeah, here's your bucket of broccoli to get your 400 milligrams that you would have gotten that little tiny yogurt. So um, removing the milk is very controversial. Uh, some of their uh, phrases here that go with this plate uh, – Makes sense for the most part, although they are a little bit loaded if you want to be hypercritical. One is be mindful of your eating habits. That's a good one. Uh, Another one is cook more often. That's probably also a good one for the most part. Enjoy your food. Eat meals with others. And I think the idea there is if you could sit around a table and actually eat, maybe you won't just shovel chili cheese fries, you know, in a hurry kind of thing. Uh, Use food labels. Limit foods high in sodium, sugar, or saturated fat. And then lastly, be aware of food marketing. So that's the new Canadian food guide. Um, I don't know. Listeners, send an email if you're if you're curious about anything else about this. Um, yeah, dropping dairy I thought was pretty controversial because it's going to be hard to get some of those nutrients otherwise. Um, so we'll see. Okay. Uh, Let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about accessory lifts uh, and how Phil and Mike go about it um, in general. So we'll be back. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you, uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is 
reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we're going to talk about accessory work or assistance work. In fact, let's start with that, Phil. Do you say accessory work or assistance work or, or both? Mm, usually assist, assistance work. Assistance. Okay. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. I didn't know if there was a proper you know, yeah. terminology there. What do you call it, Mike? Either? Either. Yeah, yeah I've probably flip-flop back and forth and use both. Because I just realized I was doing that. That's why I thought I'd ask. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's revisit some of this. We've talked about this sort of thing before to me what's most curious is like what percentage of your total effort you know is accessory work versus the big three lifts and that kind of thing but but we'll get to that Uh, for let's start with top two accessory movements or assistance type movements for for the big three lifts phil so like bench squat deadlift let's start with the bench like what do you like if you had to pick two and I know this is not what you would do, right? But if you had to pick two that would really support someone's bench, let's say. Uh, well, I'd say probably the most neglected from people would be lots of upper back work. Okay. People mm-hmm. don't think about it, but you need a big upper back to have a big bench. You need to have that supporting tissue. Um, and a lot of people neglect that. And you know, by hitting like heavy bent over rows a lot, things like that, you can actually up your bench. So... That'd be one, and then, oh, I like pressing overhead. I thought you might include that, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that's neglected a lot in the powerlifting community. 
And I've seen it time and time again when I take somebody that's even a fairly good bencher and we start, they, they have neglected pressing overhead and we end up getting their shoulders a lot stronger and uh, their bench goes up. Yep. And, you know, so. I think also you mentioned upper back. That's one of the things I like about just freestanding military presses, overhead pressing is it does involve your upper back. Like you do yeah. some heavy work like that and you're like, oh, my whole upper back is sore. Yeah. You know, it's not like a deltoid isolation movement or upper chest or something. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, how about you, Mike? What do you like? Now, not odd lifts because you have a massive repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, like something that you would really hone in on. You had somebody say, help me, you know, with my powerlifting uh, and what's, you know, bench accessory movement. Yeah, I'd say one of my favorites now which actually is a little bit more in the the health area is especially if they're weak at the bottom on a pause so if you see their lift just drop into the basement when they have to do a pause i'll put the pins on there and have them get into a bench position and then just do dead stops from the bottom Uh, there's an australian study i think showing it took up to maybe even five seconds to eliminate the stretch shortening cycling effect so I'll have them start at the bottom if they can. So lower it down, set it on the pins, so it should be right at chest level, and then wait for three to five seconds, and then press up. So do reps from there. And if you want to do an interesting mobility challenge, you can have them put their feet up on the bench, so flatten their low back. So you're basically taking out any arch specifically, and then you can play around and use like back grips or use an axle or something too for variety. But uh, so that's one of my new favorites. And then I think another thing that I played around with lately with some clients and myself is just, man, just a crap load of tricep work. I noticed when I don't train bench or even dumbbell bench press, like it just feels like my triceps get weaker a lot faster. I don't know if that's just me. Um, so with some clients actually started in adding just accessory tricep work, you know, two, three times a week, you know, dips, overhead work, presses, things of that nature. And doesn't seem to mess with their recovery and so far seems to help now you say dips and overhead presses so still compound movements not like direct arm work yeah i'll do both so i'll do like one or two i do so right now i've been doing a rotation of dips uh light overhead uh pressing and then an isolation like a tricep press down so i'll just kind of toss those into their their program in addition to what they were normally doing uh what about for our our more beginner type people you're talking about pins and can you explain exactly what you meant when you, with your first like working out of the rack i'm presuming here yeah so if you don't have access to a rack obviously you can use a spotter and just hold the weight at your chest level for an extended period of time so when you do a normal rep if you're not having a pause if you lower it right we're stretching some of the muscle but we're primarily putting energy into the ligaments and tendons and that soft tissue right you're stretching the rubber band and then when you let go, you get some kind of elastic return from it. So what we're trying to do is eliminate that as much as we can. So when you're pausing at the bottom, that energy you put in to kind of stretch some of that tissue, it kind of goes back to normal over the series of about five seconds. So that when you press it back up, you're using more of the, the muscle per se and less of the, the soft tissue on it. Mm-hmm. So especially if someone is... Usually you'll see people in the gym, you'll see them come down and about, if you watch the rep speed, that last third of the movement is just like a drop and kind of a bounce off their chest back up to that third movement again and then uh, finishing the rep. 
Because that usually tells me that that bottom portion, they're very weakened. If they go into a competition where they're going to have to do a controlled pause on their chest, their lifts are going to be substantially lower. So you're basically trying to over-accentuate that, that pause to work on that weakness. Right on. Yeah. yeah, I like the idea of manipulating like um, the pause, the explode out of the hole. I mean, it's cadence and other things. It's not just m- movement selection. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and a lot of times you'll see them just get really uncomfortable in that position too. You know, so part of it is just, you know, more practice in a weaker position. When we're talking about strength arcs like this, uh, this is just making me think of something tangential. But uh, since we're still on the bench, Phil, what about um, – do you ever use chains and bands and stuff for this kind of stuff? Yeah, we'll do some banded work. I do some some banded work quite a bit at the gym. And it just depends on where people are weak at. That's that's the, the hard part about answering this mm-hmm. is for who? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. we've got to identify who's this for and what, what are their issues. So I have some people that are weak at lockout, some people are weak off the bottom. So, you know, there's some people that are just generally weak. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll use some, we'll use some banded work sometimes and even some like slingshot work, things like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just uh, goes all over the place. Right on. Uh, let's move on to the squat, Phil. Top two accessory. Mm-hmm approaches right movements or whatever for squat good mornings mm-hmm. and heavy loaded carries okay would be my two uh, good mornings just i did generally people are not generally the average population is not weak in their quads they're weak in their posterior chain and usually on a squat uh from what i've seen it's their well it's their hamstrings or their thoracic spine giving up so uh Good mornings can help that. You know, we're purposely putting you in a disadvantageous position by having you bend over at the hip with a lot of weight on your shoulders. So, and you have to keep your spine in a certain position. And at the same time, your hamstring is now the primary mover. Uh, And then loaded carries. I haven't found a better way to get people in the correct position that we want them to in a squat than put weight on their back and make them walk. All of a sudden, you don't have a... Uh, a tilt to your pelvis and things like that it'll come back under you. <laughs> you 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 can't you 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 can't be in a in a weird pelvic tilt and walk at the same time so we get you loaded with heavy carries and that's also it's also a great way to strengthen your core so now just the best that i've seen just to um clarify for i know this is hard to do with audio but so you're mm-hmm. you literally just mean a loaded barbell on your traps yeah or a yoke yeah we use the a yoke, yoke a lot. The yoke walk or farmer's walks, you know, if you if you have somebody that has, you know, they tilt their pelvis a lot in squat, um, we can retrain that just with loaded carries. You know, it gets yeah. them to load the bar and it gets their hips back under them. Yeah. Um, because, like I said, you can't you can't stick your ass out and walk at the same time. So right, <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't work. So it and it. that that gets their hips reprogrammed to be to where they need to be when they're standing with the bar. Um, yeah, and it also just uh, there's a massive core strength thing to it. So, yeah, and gets you used to heavier weights. Generally, you can just you can stroll along with a heavier weight than you can sit down and stand up with. So you get used to heavy weight on your back and things like that. Right. So. Yeah, I ask partly because not everybody's going to have access to a yoke. I think. And the yeah, you, know, oh, the you can use a heavy bar. I mean, I probably wouldn't walk too far. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> I wouldn't walk too far away from where you have to put it back. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can do it. Okay. Uh, Mike, um, top two accessory movements to help with a squat. Yeah, I'd say the oddball one. I'd say if you can do a zercher lift, that's probably pretty good, but that's an oddball one. I'd say more common ones. Um, I actually am a big fan of lunges. I know that it's probably, I don't think, going to transfer super well to like a max load, mm-hmm. but I like the, you know, especially lunging forward and pushing <laughs> back to start. So trying to absorb some force, trying to redirect it. And people haven't done those for a while, even just pretty strong people with body weight like your hamstrings and glutes can be pretty sore from just doing that if you haven't done them in a while and then i like doing them to slightly different angles and i think that's probably more of a a joint health um soft tissue component as just some lighter accessory work and you normally don't have to go super heavy on them either so you're kind of limiting a little bit of the the spinal uh, axial loading also Uh, i probably also agree i had written down farmer's walks uh, with phil that if if you're trying to make if especially if you're a thoracic and upper body quote unquote and core is kind of the weak part of your squat then just grabbing weight and walking for a distance is really really good and if you don't have farmer's bars you don't have a trap bar you can do them a, a zercher style so just hold the heaviest uh, barbell in the crooks of your elbows or put some fat grips or a towel on it if it's you know just destroying your forearms and you don't need a lot of weight to start with that and then just walk I mean, the amount of, you know, core, as much as they hate that word, stabilization and upper body work, uh, just to hold it there and move is, is much higher than you would think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, deadlift, Phil. Two favorites? See, all my stuff rolls downhill. It rolls downhill just like my, my training. Like, I do lunges and stuff, too. It's just generally how, how we do it is, like, main move. Some other primary moves that are like it, then we move on to smaller yeah. stuff. Right. Um, yes. Gosh. Uh, Stiff legged deadlifts, I don't have anybody not do them. Um, I just think they're a great move. They're the one deadlift that I will do in high reps. I won't do like a regular deadlift, much over fives, but stiff legged deadlifts, we will. Um, and gosh. Uh, back to your rowing. Rowing or, or yeah, I'll just stick with rowing. Heavy rows, man. Because again, you need a everything goes back to your back with me on all these moves. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If and we've talked about it before, you can ID a good power lifter, like somebody who's been in it a long time, just because their back is massive. And for every one of the lifts, you need to have a strong back. So some heavy, heavy bent over rows. I love it. I mean, some of what you're saying. You can say it's accessory work, but to a bodybuilder, heavy bent rows, that's that's a meat and potatoes lift, mm-hmm. you know, because of what you just said. I mean, it builds your back like crazy. Yeah. So, um, uh, Mike, how about you? With deadlift, what might you do as accessory or assistance? Yeah. I mean, obviously, my biggest one is going to be other deadlifts, but, you know, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's an accessory <laughs> one, say. Uh, but. Yeah, kind of with Phil, I do love RDLs. I think are great. Uh, I had written down penlay rows, right? So a bent over mm-hmm. row where you kind of start at the bottom each time. Because what I found, if people do bent over rows, they tend to transform into some weird upright shrug mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> or if we force them to start the barbell on the ground each time, that starting position is the same. You're working a little bit more on concentric uh, force there. So just pulling it back up. I tend to like to do them with a 
fairly bent over torso, uh, which is probably a little bit different. Uh, another accessory one with that that, again, it's kind of an oddball lift that people have access to it, is bent over plate rows. So take like a 45-pound plate, or you can add two of them on there. Uh, slip your hands underneath with your thumbs on the side, and then just row towards you. And obviously, this is going to be for higher reps. The nice part about that is that it's a different position that you don't normally get in with your hands uh, wider, and that usually is pretty good for upper back, lats, that type of thing. Um, last thing I would add, too, that a lot of people forget is just any type of supportive grip. I see a lot of people all test their uh, mixed grip pull versus their double overhand pull, and if there's a huge difference, I know that just by working on some specific grip work that their lift is probably going to go up. I mean, even if they're allowed to use straps in competition, things of that nature, um, and everybody's had the experience, right? So if you go and you just hold the grip, the bar, you're like, oh, yeah, today's going to be a good day, and everything just feels lighter. It just seems like the more secure your connection is to that implement, like all mm-hmm. your lifts tend to go up. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of Fortress used to bark at me about that kind of stuff when we were doing specific strength work, right? Which he'd be like, squeeze the shit out of that bar, Lonnie, you know? <laughs> And just to try to feel that, like, you know, you're right. It does send a message to your whole body. Like, I'm really connected. This is feels right. It's moving right. I don't yeah. know. I feel stronger. Some, And I'm sure there's a priming of the nervous system thing. And, Mike, you'd be way better at describing this than I am. But it's like the jaw clench thing almost. You know, like how much of this is just telling my nervous system it's go time just by squeezing. Well, yeah, and it's just a funny thing with grip. It's like your body, people don't realize this, but – your body will only pull like a deadlift as as strong as your grip. Yeah, you know it'll it'll literally shut you down. Where you'll make a lift look really hard, then you give somebody a grip aid and they kill it. Yeah, um, it's because it's slipping out of their hands and their body's like it just won't let them pull harder. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think grip's big. I mean, that's the only time I address that is with issues like Brian when he first started with me. Um, he couldn't. He had no grip because he had trained his whole life with straps. So oh, basically, yeah. we had to we had to move him away from straps and build his grip up over because oh, he yeah. was ready to do, he could pull nine hundred off the floor with straps, but he uh, he couldn't hold it. So yeah. so we had to attack that. So lots of just standing, holding a bar, things like that. I mean, that's one that the ones I've seen work. Farmers or just like set bar and rack, stand up, hold, and just sit there and hold for time because people don't realize people will buy grippers and things like that. It's different. It's yeah. not the same. Grippers stri- don't transfer. Like my grip strength is my gripper strength is crap, but my ability to hang on to something and just just hold it is is it greatly exceeds my ability to lift. So mm-hmm. uh, my crushing strength is not is not that great, but well, it's me, just never been a high priority. Let me clarify then, Mike. Since you do you actually done grip competitions and stuff, I mean, yeah. is is a hook grip a form of cheating? Uh, I just think it's different. Um, because you're trapping the thumb there, so you get a lot more friction. And if people do that, I think that definitely can work. But you know, vast majority of people are going to need to practice that with very light weight. Because mm-hmm. I keep trying to do it, and I go away from it because it just freaking hurts. And yeah. I just, I don't know, maybe I'm too much of a pussy and stop. <laughs> but <laughs> when I'm doing grip competitions, I can't use the hook grip, so it's not. For what I do is not super specific, with the exception of maybe a couple lifts. Um, but I don't know. I think it's an option. I mean, I would rather have people go to a two-inch axle or just buy some of the blue fat grips and go to a like two-inch diameter 
and do that for some accessory work, mm-hmm. uh, that tends to transfer really well. And if you want to teach them the importance of grip, like Phil said, I'll put those on a bar, have them do double overhand. And it's crazy to try to lift something you can't hold on to, but mm-hmm. you can't move your body. Yeah, it just won't let you pull. bizarre, like your hips don't even come up early. It's like you can't, mm-hmm. it's a bizarre thing that I think everyone should try at least once. And then you have the inverse of that when everything feels strong. You're like, oh, yeah, it's a lot easier. Well, in, on hook grip, too, there's a genetic factor. Like oh, no. I was I was never able to go above 650, and that's because my thumbs would pop out. I have not small hands. I have fairly big hands, but it's mainly palm. So my thumb, my fingers aren't that long. You mm-hmm. have to have enough finger to mm-hmm. be able to yeah, a good, a good grip on that. Yeah. And uh, so that's why I gave up on it. I was like, and I immediately went back to Smith's grip and was over 700 again. So it's like, right. I'm not wasting my time doing this. <laughs> yeah. So. I I would think an uncharitable observer would just say, just get a stronger grip, dude, you know, instead yeah. of trying to – it's kind of a loophole in a sense, isn't it? Like you're you're relying well, on, I mean, on your soft tissue. Like <laughs> to me, it's almost like – does this damage the thumb joint at some point, or the or the oh, tissue, or you know, because you're you're almost actually good for it, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, of right? course it does. But I mean, at that again, I'll go back to does lifting up eight hundred pounds do your body good? Probably not. You know, they're doing what it takes to win. That I mean, the same thing could be is is mixed grip cheating? No, yeah. you know, it's just yeah. it's just doing what you got to do. At a certain point, I don't think you're going to find anybody that can owe double overhand nine hundred. Right. Right. Without a hook. Oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's oh. a lot, you know. So, yeah. At a certain point, you've got to use some kind of form of of grip aid, meaning mixed grip, hook grip, something to move the loads that we're talking about needing to be moved. Makes sense, so. yeah. You know, even just from a hypertrophy standpoint, when I deadlift, I much prefer a double overhand, you know, sort of um, – pronated kind of grip it just makes my if i feel it in my upper back more when, than when i do a mixed grip or something like that because yeah. not to offend our power lifter crowd but i don't really care how much i'm pulling off the ground i want to build my upper back you know yeah. and the double overhand just feels better i guess like but by that by that um thinking though i'll even do low rack pulls mm-hmm. not even straight off all the way off the floor sometimes because it, the deadlift is always a messy movement for bodybuilders because what do you what do you do? Uh, is it leg work? Is it back work? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, one last bit. Um, I mentioned earlier that we would touch on this at the end. So, what about uh, these accessory movements as a percent of a uh, client's total mm. workload, like off season, on season? Is it even seasonal? How do you approach that, Phil? The the inclusion. Oh, we of definitely seasons? we definitely do more. Like the swing towards assistance work goes much greater in off season in, mm-hmm. in what I do. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna do a lot more of that and I don't know, it's probably twenty five seventy five. Okay, uh, there you go. And then as the season comes to an end, like the most thing we're doing is bench and squatting to deadlift and really heavy. And when you're doing when you're in that ninety percent range, there's not a lot left. And we're also, we're not, we're training to squat, bench, and deadlift. So that's where our time needs to be sent. We need to get real good at hitting that for singles. Mm-hmm. So, of course we do. We do more of that than we do the assistance work. And we're also, as the intensity goes up and the meat gets closer, we're we're trying to walk that fine line between um, 
Well, what people don't realize is you're four weeks out. You're not progressing anymore. You're not getting stronger. We're in the realization phase. Yeah. We're trying to realize exactly how strong you are. So mm-hmm. we're just getting very efficient and very good at those single moves. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no amount of assistance work that I can do four weeks out that will make you literally stronger for yeah. that meet. You're just, yeah. It just doesn't happen that way. So we're just trying to make you as efficient as you can with what we've already built. So All right. Now, that begs the question. The accessory work, the intent is, is it hypertrophy or motor pattern? Some some are more one than the other, I'm guessing. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it just depends. Yeah. So it, um, it depends on the lifter and where they're at. So a lot of times assistance work is, especially around my gym, because we're not big on on making weight classes. Um, we're big on moving the most weight that we can. So it's usually most of my lifters are usually let's eat and train hard. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's building accessory work is geared towards building more mass. You know, it's very yeah. bodybuilder esque. It's it's about putting on soft tissue. Or uh, muscle tissue. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's mainly what it's about. But it's also addressing weaknesses, you know. And usually it's around that 80% range in a main move that you can start seeing a weakness. I don't need to go to a max. I can start to see what's going to go wrong around there or even earlier. Yeah. So we're addressing that. We're trying to make that not a weakness anymore. And we're trying to create a new weakness by making that, that one a strength. So we're, we're building. And a lot of times you can do that by just building tissue. <laughs> yeah. Bigger engine. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know. Neural pattern? No, I don't think so. I mean, our neural work is done with the move and in the warm ups, you know, trying to do that main move correctly um, and cueing. Okay. But uh, so it's just, it's strength and tissue is what we're trying to do. Right. Addressing weaknesses and, and, and building a massive engine. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned good mornings, which is something I never really did much of, actually, uh, when I did. Like just three fifteen in the squat, you know, and you do more than ten reps with that, your lower back starts to go. Like if you want to know yeah. if your lower back's not up to snuff, for me and the guys that I used to train with, that's when that would happen. If you try to do higher <laughs> rep squats with a, a medium weight or more, mm-hmm. you don't see it with a couple of reps when you're not fatigued. But as you start yes. to fatigue, you start to sag forward, you know, with like a spinal flexion, and you're like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, that's my yeah. lower back. Well, I'm also there's numerous reasons why I'm a big fan of Good Mornings because, um, yeah, your back strength and things like that. But there is going to be a time, and you're if you're a powerlifter and you're serious about this, there's going to be a time you get out of position with a heavy load. Yep. And if you're able to, Good Morning, a great percentage of your squat, you're not in an issue. You're not in a problem. You've been there before. You know how to get back out of that. You mean for injury? So, yeah, to prevent. Well, and just making a lift. You know, if you accidentally shoot your hips up a little bit and your good morning is just shit, you're in trouble. If you're not, like there's numerous videos of me where I'll I'll shoot my hips and, yeah, I slow down a lot, but I'll be like, I'm okay. I got it, got it, got it, got it, and I'm just shifting and, and coming up. Okay. But, I mean, I'll start good mornings very light with people. It's one of those moves that I think too many people go to too heavy too soon. Um but eventually we're going to work up the really, really heavy good mornings, threes and ones and things like that over with a new lifter. I'm talking over years. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there was a point there was a point in my career. I did a a good morning with a safety squat bar with 675 and touched my elbows, to my knees and came back up. Jesus. So I knew if I ever get out of position in a squat, I'm all right. I'll be fine. Yeah, I can fight out of it. You know, power, so, power through it. Yeah. 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 So. 
Uh, all right, Mike, what about you? Uh, percentage of accessory work, and is it seasonal mm-hmm. and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it as in terms of more of a hierarchy, I guess, in terms of looking at programs, what are things you're going to prioritize? I got this from Frankie Ferries and Adam Glass. So very similar to Phil, like the first one is specific. If you're doing a powerlifting meet, obviously squat, bench, and deadlift. You know, how much specific, you know, said principle, specific adaptation, imposed demand, how much of that specific work can I get in the program? Because that's going to be the fastest way to get them better at those, you know, specific lifts. But you're going to reach a point where you can't do, you know, 100% of your work there. And the percentage will vary a lot with lifters. I've had, you know, one guy qualified for raw nationals and, he only really did one day of accessory stuff, and he was literally doing squat, bench, deadlift four days a week. <laughs> wow. But he was kind of a freak. I don't have many people that can do that and survive. They usually have joint issues and a bunch of other stuff. Exactly, yeah. Um, so after that, then like we talked about accessory stuff, what are some common exercises you can put in? Your goal is to try to get you know positive transfer. You're trying to increase your main lift, right? So RDLs to help deadlift, things of that mm-hmm. nature. Once you've kind of maxed that out, then I look at contra-specific. Like Phil said, if your bench press is stalled out and we're doing a lot of specific work, we're doing a lot of accessory work, maybe it's your upper back that's the limiting factor. You know, And I've taken some people who their bench press was stalled, and I just had them started doing upper back, like a ton of rows. You know, They were doing some form of a row four to five days a week for four to 12 weeks and very little bench press work. They went back and retested their bench press after a week, and their bench press went up. So sometimes it's the opposite of what you should be doing. And if that still doesn't work, then you're just looking at stuff that's novel, you know, stuff that just may be different, things they may not have done for a while, you know, who knows then. If it's just more work, maybe it's some hypertrophy, maybe it's some soft tissue stuff. But that's kind of the priority I look at in terms of programming. Yeah. And I agree. And one thing that I think is worth mentioning is I've had this asked, had this question asked me quite a few times. Is like many of my, we'll call them, I don't know, advanced or elite lifters, if you look at their programs, they look very simple compared to my beginning lifters. Like a beginning lifter, I'm going to have them do a lot more assistance stuff. Yeah. And my later lifters, it's like main move, accessory move, some ab work. You know, and that's it. Okay. But the reason for that is if I have a new lifter, let's say I got a new high school kid that comes in, they don't have a weak point, they're weak. Yes. You know, right. My advanced <laughs> yeah. lifters have a weak point. You know, they have like one or two things we're addressing, and we address one of those at a time usually. So it's like, okay, you need to squat, do some good mornings or loaded carries, some ab work, you're done. You know, whereas the other guy, it's like, dude, you're 148 pounds of squat, 225. You're fucking weak. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to do all this shit. Yeah, you know, here's your laundry list. Let's get it done. Yeah. You know, we're gonna build everything. So you don't you don't have a weak point in that stage of life. You're just not strong. So um, their their programs earlier lifters their programs look a lot more I don't know uh, complicated or just in you know it's just bigger. They're doing more stuff. Whereas uh, a later lifter we can address we can address assistance moves while we're squatting just through cueing. You know, sure. you're not yeah. doing this, fix it, you know? So whereas the other people, it's just, we have to just build that stuff. We have to, they can't do it. They just literally can't cause they don't have the time under the bar. So we need to address lots and lots and lots of assistance work on, on newer lifters. That's a but fun way. My, right. Yeah. And then my, my advanced lifters, when we do that stuff is off season and that's more of just a, 
like Mike was talking about, you can only squat so many times. Ugh. So like Brian, he got done and literally from six weeks, we just don't. We just do other stuff. It's like go in the gym with machines and have fun. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get your joints not unhappy from squatting 900 pounds. Right. Overuse. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Do you find a lot of that's just a mental thing too? You know, sometimes you just got to get away from oh, the, yeah, it is. doing it the is. same thing day in and day yeah, out too. A lot of that is, it's just a good break. It's just, let's just go in have fun. and go in and have fun. It literally go in yeah. and have fun and train and not have a goal in mind. Let's just go, go get your pump on, bro. <laughs> <You know? Yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's a nice change of pace for the while. It's relaxing because you, when you're working with serious lifters, literally, I mean, every bit of their, their daily energy is geared towards that like okay i'm squatting 900 this meet and that's what they're thinking about all the time so it's nice to take just a mental and physical break from that yeah i guess so. okay all right well i think that covers it uh i know we've Sweet. talked about this sort of thing before but it's it's fun to revisit especially from different angles and whatnot so. mm-hmm. yep. good stuff all right guys good stuff see Talk you later all right see you guys Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, 
and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.